Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Susan Deniker, a member with Steptoe and Johnson PLLC in West Virginia. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we are also fortunate to have the opportunity to dial in our local ELA lawyers who practice on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to help their local clients move through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're gonna to be chatting with a member in Minnesota and one in upstate New York. I'm really excited to announce that joining us on the program today are Neil Goldsmith, partner at Lathrop GPM in Minnesota, and Peter Jones, a member at Bond, Shawnick, and King in New York. ELA's Higher Education Council stays up to date on legal developments in higher education. In fact, recently we discussed with a few of our members the NCAA's relatively new policy on name, image, and likeness. And now we have another important development in higher education to talk to you about, which also involves student athletes. And today, Neil and Pete are going to talk with us about the memo we received from the NLRB's general counsel on student athletes and their possible status as employees. Welcome to the program, Pete and Neil. How are you guys doing today? Good afternoon, Susan. Doing very well. It's good to talk with you. Happy to be here. Excited to share a little, hopefully, valuable insight on the NLRB's general counsel memo. Yeah, happy to be here. Likewise, very excited to talk about this interesting and timely topic. Well, on that note, this is an interesting and timely topic. So just on September 29th, the National Labor Relations Board's general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, issued a memorandum in which she took a position on whether the board will consider scholarship athletes to be employees under the National Labor Relations Act. So that's a lot of legal stuff, right? Right out of the gate. Fortunately, we've got two experts to help us break it down. So Pete, start us off and let's start where we should always start at the beginning. What in the world is the National Labor Relations Board? What's the general counsel of the NLRB? And what does this mean for universities? So let's start with that background. Yes, Susan, excellent question. So just briefly, National Labor Relations Board is a creation of the National Labor Relations Act. This is New Deal legislation. It was passed in 1935. The board itself is a five-member panel that sits in Washington, D.C., Typically, the majority of that panel, three members, is appointed from the president's political party and the minority, the other two members, from the other party. And as we've talked about on this podcast previously, that tends to lead to swings in board doctrine from time to time as the incumbent in the White House changes. The general counsel is really the chief prosecutor, the chief enforcement person for the NLRB. And in this case, She sets the agenda for cases to be heard before the board, but she doesn't get to decide those cases. So what we're talking about today would be an enforcement position that's been announced by the general counsel and which she will be putting out to the regions. The regions are centered in cities around the country. They do the investigations. They make the decisions about whether to issue a complaint. The complaints lead to cases. The cases lead to matters pending before the board which of course leads ultimately to decisions. And so 
we're really at the first step of that process with the general counsel's memo that we'll be talking about today. With the groundwork that Pete just laid, Neil, explain to us what the NLRB general counsel memo actually says. So her memorandum was really very clear. She set forth her position as the general counsel that, quote, scholarship football players at Division I FBS private colleges and universities and other similarly situated players at academic institutions are employees under the NLRA. So basically what she's saying is if you're watching college football on Saturday, you're probably watching Division I FBS primetime top 25 games. If you're watching a game that involves a private institution, she thinks that those players are employees under the National Labor Relations Act. That's a pretty explosive statement and position, right? But it's not the first time that this has come on the scene in higher education. So Pete, take us back a little bit. Take us back a few years and and talk to us about the previous experience we've had and our clients have had as they've looked at what the NLRB might do with scholarship football players in particular, because those of us that have been doing this for a little bit have a foggy recollection of Northwestern University. So tell us about that. Sure. So back in 2014, the case started and the theory that was under consideration there again, at the regional level, which is the level where these cases start, was whether or not the football players who were on scholarship at Northwestern University were employees or not. And the regional director there found that they were, that got appealed to the board in Washington. In 2015, we received a decision from the board that was really kind of interesting. They declined to exercise jurisdiction, and they explicitly declined to say whether or not these scholarship football players were employees under the National Labor Relations Act. The theory there that was stated in the decision was that it really wouldn't promote labor stability to reach this question and to exercise the jurisdiction. And I think the primary concern, at least if you read the decision, was that only 17 out of 125 of the FBS football schools that Neil's mentioning are private institutions. And so the remaining public institutions we're not within the traditional jurisdiction of the NLRB. And so the board in that case seemed to say, we don't think a single institution bargaining unit, in this case, Northwestern University, would promote stability in labor relations, and therefore we declined to reach the question. Thanks, Pete. I want to get the highlighter out and highlight something that you just said, because it's a big deal for our listeners. Talk about the difference of application here for public and private institutions? So the National Labor Relations Board was created to regulate labor relations in the private sector. And historically, labor relations in the public sector have been regulated at the state level, you know, if at all, by state legislatures for their public employees. And so a public institution, if you follow the general counsel's theory here, if football players on scholarship at a private institution might be employees, or in her you know, memo, are employees, then the question would be, you know, what about those on scholarship at a public institution? And that's where the board historically has you know, not had jurisdiction and would not have jurisdiction. And I like how you couch that in terms of historically, because sometimes we don't know what's coming down the pike, right? Years ago, we wouldn't have thought we would be talking about scholarship athletes at private institutions as possible employees. So 
Neil, we've got listeners thinking, okay, if I'm at a public institution, I'm okay here. And if I don't have maybe D1 scholarship football players, maybe I'm okay. But we can't say that, right? Because the GC's memo goes beyond and actually gives us a little insight into what she at least is thinking about in terms of other athletes. So this is a great lesson and always read the footnotes. There's an amazing footnote. I think it's the last one in the memo where she basically says, oh, and by the way, yeah, I'm only talking about private institutions, but I think I might actually pursue a joint employer theory with the NCAA itself. So she's going to drag the NCAA as being a potential employer of these student athletes along with the institutions themselves. And then she goes even further and says, I also might bring in the conferences. I'm going to say that the Big Ten Conference is a joint employer along with Northwestern University of these football player employees. And she says, yeah, just because, yeah, she says, you know, I I know there might be mostly state institutions in these conferences over which I don't have jurisdiction, but, you know, it it clearly impacts what's going on at these private institutions. And, And so I think I might pursue that as well, which I think that's a really radical shift and not something that I had previously seen from the NLRB. I think that's a good point. And And do you guys agree that this opens the door not only for unionization and protections for scholarship football players, but for also other types of athletes? I think, you know, that to me is the biggest real question of the memo. And I think the stuff about, I just mentioned about joint employer and the NCAA and what's going to happen there. I think it's unlikely we're actually going to see that come to fruition. But A major question here is, okay, well, who are other similarly situated players, right? Frankly, in my mind, I think those that generate revenue for the university, those that that generate significant revenue for the university. I think that's really the main factor that the general counsel is relying on here from the Northwestern decision, where it was very clear, right? These student athletes generate tens of millions of dollars for the university, It's the general counsel's position that these athletes provide a vital service to their universities, you know, not just to the team, to the athletic department, but really to the entire university as a whole. So I think football is singled out because it's the biggest revenue generator and is very well known and and the players are known. But if you have other sports at other schools that are non-football, basketball is obviously another one that's quite popular, but there's certain certain sports or certain conferences in certain parts of the country, no matter where you are, if you've got student athlete that is really driving revenue, I think they're going to assert jurisdiction and claim that those student athletes are also employees. I was just going to comment on that, Susan. I think that's a, you know, a significant question that we don't know the full answer to. We don't know what the scope of that phrase is. You know, certain players at academic institutions, I think, is the actual phrase that's being used. But Neil has made a, you know, I think a reasonable interpretation of what the general counsel is thinking. And it would follow that student athletes who are engaged in sports that produce revenue might be, you know, amenable under her theory. So we're watching and waiting on that issue. Is that fair to say, gentlemen? I think it is. And I think it's important to say this is an enforcement position from the general counsel. This is not board law yet. Right. And I think a number of commentators have said this looks to be a roadmap from the general counsel on how you might revisit Northwestern. But right now, Northwestern is the law. 
And that's a decision where the board declined to exercise jurisdiction and declined to reach a decision on whether they're employees or not. So that remains the law. And we'll see what the general counsel's memo does in terms of the decisions and the positions that are ultimately taken. And of course, board decisions are appealable to the circuit courts of appeal and theoretically at least up through the Supreme Court. So we may be a ways away from getting real clarity here, Susan. I think that those are critically important points, Pete. And to follow up on that, you talked a little bit earlier about the political nature of the board because the president gets three appointments right on the board. And so as we see presidential administrations change, we do see changes in terms of the makeup of the board and consequently in decisions of the board. Is it fair to say that the GC's memo is a proclamation of this current administration's position on where they'd like to see the board go on this topic? That seems like a reasonable reading to me. And I suppose we we also need to take a step back. Everyone is focused on the organizational aspect of this, which was the, you know, the big issue at play in Northwestern and certainly gets a fair amount of play in this memo. The original premise of the memo, the very beginning of the memo and the the building blocks that she lays out are that even if the board doesn't process petitions for representation, that she still believes that these student athletes are employees and therefore they would be entitled to the protections of the act to engage in protected concerted activity. And so she would process complaints that relate to retaliation for having engaged in protected concerted activity, even if the board doesn't take that additional step with respect to bargaining units. She's going to urge the board to take a mini step in recognizing certain rights for student athletes as employees. Well, that's a great segue to the next question I want to ask. And Neil, I'm going to ask you to weigh in on this. Pete's talking about the effect of this is that if student athletes are in fact employees under the National Labor Relations Act, they have the right then to engage in concerted activity. Take away the lawyer talk here. And what does that practically mean for institutions that have these athletes that now have these rights? Yeah, this is really, really interesting because basically if you have two student athletes, two or more that are talking about their terms and conditions of employment, which I think could be interpreted broadly to mean anything relating to the football team and the plays they run, what coaches are in charge of which things, right? And they band together and they raise an issue or they protest something about that. According to the GC here, right, that's that's protected concerted activity. And if you retaliate against a player for engaging in that activity, that's a violation of the act. I mean, I, I think about it, right? You've got a, a running back and a wide receiver going to the offensive coordinator and saying, hey, why did we run this play here? We should have ran this other play instead. I'm really concerned that, you know, we could have won the game if we did this and you're not doing a good job. And the coach says, okay, well, you're suspended for the next two games because I don't want to hear that. You're the, you're the player. I'm the coach, right? Is that an unfair labor practice? Maybe. Interesting issues. I was thinking more that complaints might be, we want better food, right? In the field house (laughs) and we want better athletic gear or something. But I think that those two, I think those are probably more likely things, but I just, I wanted to take it. I'm, I'm a big sports fan, so I'm just, I'm kind of taking it to its extreme here. But, you know, I think there's a reasonable argument to be had based on what the GC has put forth. And I think safety might be a likely thing that we would see, especially in the context of football. 
you know, protected concerted activity alleged based upon assertion of a safety issue or something like that. So the, the, there are some interesting examples at the margin, Neil. There's others that are, you know, sort of right in the direct wheelhouse of things that we might expect to see. It's a game changer, pun intended, right? So if you are an academic institution with Division One football players, for instance, right, at a private institution, what should you be doing right now in light of the September 29th GC memo? Pete, I'm glad you start on that one. Well, a, a couple of things really spring to mind for me. One is that you would immediately try to assess whether you have student athletes that fit within the notion of similarly situated players at academic institutions. If you do, then potentially this memo could apply to you, could be applied to you. It's certainly the enforcement position that might be applied to you. So then you would probably want to go to the second level and say, okay, what should we be doing differently, if anything? And a couple of things spring to mind there for me. The answer to all of our suppositions about what the protected activity might be is don't retaliate against players for engaging in you know, group activity. Stay focused on addressing performance, conduct, other issues on a neutral basis. And this is not a novel proposition for those of us who practice employment law. It's, you know, don't, don't retaliate based on the protected activity, you know, follow legitimate non-discriminatory reasons. But some training on that concept might be in, in order if you conclude that the memo applies to you, because it may not be as a common thing or roll off the tongue the way it would our HR clients who know, you know, full and well, don't retaliate for protected activity. The other thing that I think everyone should do is be looking at their documents, their publications, what they send out to athletes when they're being recruited and once they're in the programs, because I think those sorts of things need to be evaluated as well. There is, Susan, you're probably going to ask us about this, so I'll sort of dive right in a little bit to say there's an interesting discussion here about the use of the term student athlete itself, and I think some decisions will have to be made on that as well. That's right. And Neil. You know, Pete raises some really good points about retaliation and how you handle concerns that get raised by student athletes. And we'll talk about that term here in a minute. But what about the the idea of unionization here, right? So we've talked a little bit about engaging in concerted activity just in terms of raising questions and issues about terms and conditions of your status, right, as a student athlete. But what about the potential for unionization? Is this something that institutions need to be ready for? Short answer is yes. However, I want to make it clear that the general counsel doesn't really have authority over representation petitions. That's a separate part of the NLRB. What the general counsel does is they prosecute unfair labor practice charges, so violations of the NLRA against employers. Importantly, the Northwestern case that came through, that came to the board ultimately, where they chose to punt on the question of whether or not the football players were were employees, that came through a representation petition filed by the Northwestern players. So I think what is what is likely going to happen is if the GC asserts this enforcement position in an unfair labor practice setting and the NLRB accepts that position and does find that you know these student athletes or scholarship athletes are employees, then I, I think that really opens the door, certainly for organizing under the act. If you're an employee, you're an employee. It's not like, well, you're only an employee for unfair labor practice charge purposes, but you're not for organizing purposes. 
it's you're you're an employee, you have all the rights under the act. So while the enforcement position again is still just a position and the person setting forth this position doesn't have necessarily authority over the organizing part of it, I think we'd be naive to think that they're two separate things. I think institutions do need to be concerned about what additional support for union organizing this memo could provide. Thanks, Neil. I think that those are important points. You and Pete have raised things that institutions need to be on the lookout for here in terms of understanding what concerted activity may look like and also being aware of signs of potential organizing activity. Pete made a really important observation, and that is we're dealing with folks in college athletics who have a lot of things to worry about, right? Rules, regulations under the NCAA, making sure their teams are prepared and ready to go for game day. What they don't have a ton of experience in, right, are dealing with these issues that have traditionally been HR issues that companies and businesses are prepared to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So how do institutions help their folks identify these issues that you guys have been talking about? Pete, tell us your thoughts on that in terms of training and maybe policies and other things where institutions can be proactive. Yeah, so I think, you know, if you take that list of things that I just sort of outlined, you'd say, okay, from there, once we conclude, you know, where we fall on the spectrum of risk and, and, you know, what our decisions are with respect to things that we may want to change, you're then into creating some programs where you would, you know, talk about the principles and train people to avoid the kinds of claims. If you conclude you're at risk for union organizing, and again, I'm not certain that, that, that people are at this point, I think the board reached a pretty wise decision in Northwestern based upon the, you know, industry, if you want to view it as, as that because of the public-private dichotomy. But you might want to talk about how you respond to organizing activity and not, you know, creating an unfair labor practice by not following the rules, which can sometimes be a little bit counterintuitive. And then, you know, I really do think you're going to want to parse your materials to make sure that you're being as fair and at least analyzing the risks with respect to the position that GC has taken. Neil, I'm going to give you the last word here. I'm going to let you clean up the explosive that Pete tried to throw under the rug earlier about use of the term student-athletes, right? There's something in this GC memo that that talks about whether we should really be referring to these folks as student-athletes, which is counterintuitive to folks that think of student-athletes as student-athletes. So expound upon what Pete threw out there earlier. He was like the king of understatement on this (laughs) issue. So I'll let you pick up on it, Neil. Well, Pete gave us a good tease on this, so I can I can follow through on it. So the general counsel's memo, right? The the premise is that these athletes are employees. Then it's a question of okay, well, if they're employees, then they have these certain rights that can't be violated, right? There there needs to be a separate step, something else that an institution does to actually violate those rights to bring a claim before the board. However, what she did mention towards the end of the memo is the mere fact of labeling these players as, quote, student athletes, just by calling them student athletes, that in and of itself could be an unfair labor practice. This is similar to a position that was asserted under the Obama board, where the GC there said that misclassification of employees as independent contractors in and of itself could be an unfair labor practice. So I think we're kind of piggybacking on on that theory here. And what her reasoning there was interesting is, is she basically said, well, because you have the word student in it, 
you're misleading these athletes. You are misleading them into thinking that they are not employees. So the fact of that label actually has a chilling effect on their protected activity because they would think, well, I'm not an employee. I don't have these rights. Therefore, I'm not going to engage in this activity was her reasoning. I would love to see the expressions on our listeners' faces as they are thinking about all of the things that you guys have just told them, including maybe we shouldn't call student-athletes student-athletes, or it could be an unfair labor practice charge. That's a fun way to end a really excellent discussion. This is a fascinating topic, and it's just going to continue to evolve very quickly. Thank you, Neil and Pete, for your insight. As promised, you guys are wonderful experts on this subject, and I know we've all learned a lot today. And for our listeners, please know that ELA will be staying on top of this topic and it plans to present a full webinar on this issue. So stay tuned for updates. The ELA and the Higher Education Council has your backs and we'll be covering this. If you'd like to connect with Neil or Pete, please click on their bios in the description of this podcast. Also search the ELA website at ela.law, where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Susan Deniker. Thanks so much for listening.